Mm-hmm. Hey, speaking of single and 30 hours a week after your job, is Merrick there? Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. Don't panic, they'll be paid for most of them. This podcast is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of WebStorm. Whether you're working with Node.js or building the front end of your web application, WebStorm is the tool for you. It has great code quality and code exploration tools and works with HTML5, Node, TypeScript, CoffeeScript, Harmony, Less, SAS, Jade, JSLint, JSHint, and the Google Closure Compiler. Check it out at jetbrains.com slash webstore. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 76 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Jameson Dance. Hello, friends. Joe Eames. Hey there. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. We've also got two special guests, and that is Fred Zierdong. Hello. Did I totally butcher that? Yeah, you got it right. Okay, and uh, Marcus Phillips. Hi, everybody. So since you guys haven't been on the show before, do you want to introduce yourself? We'll have Marcus go first. Sure. Uh, well, I'm Marcus Phillips. I, um, I'm a JavaScript enthusiast. I've been doing it for a long time. Really excited about, uh, you know, framework architecture and, um, and lately, uh, about teaching what I've learned over the course of time that I've been working in the Bay Area and, um, working on, uh, the front end of Twitter and things like that. Nowadays I teach at Hack Reactor full time. Which is a an immersive uh, immersive school for learning to become a developer over a period of three months. Cool. Awesome. And uh, which technologies do you teach at Hack Reactor? So we use uh, JavaScript as our teaching language. Fundamentally, what we're trying to do is uh, teach people software engineering principles. So um, JavaScript is just turns out to be one of the most useful languages we can use to do that. But from there, we kind of want to give people practical skills that they can use uh, immediately on the job. So. We definitely drive the entire curriculum out of GitHub repos and teach them sort of practical things like backbone and node and um, deployment strategies. So yeah, we kind of we kind of cover the gamut from front end to back end with a focus on JavaScript in particular. Awesome! That sounds really cool. Yeah, it does. Um, it's a lot of fun. Fred, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself real quick, and then we'll uh, we'll start talking about stuff. Great. Hi, I'm Fred Zerdung, and I'm also a web development enthusiast. I've been doing software development for probably about, well, since I was about 16 or so. And uh, I'm most enthusiastic about uh, front-end web applications, in particular JavaScript-powered um, uh, frameworks and technologies. And I also work at Hack Reactor. I left working in the industry to to impart my knowledge onto new minds. You know, I find it really exciting to take the knowledge and the experience that I've learned from the last 20 plus years doing software development to uh, help train the next generation of software developers. Cool. So we brought you on the show to talk about Meteor, and I find it interesting that neither of you actually mentioned that. So what, <laughs> what is your experience with Meteor? Uh, so we, uh, we started teaching Meteor because um, we were looking for something that the students could really see what a full stack application looks like. We wanted them to have experience in a language that they were familiar with before we started pushing Rails and other frameworks on them that would be, you know, totally new. 
And our first thought was, yeah, Meteor is a great choice because it, uh, you know, it, it does show what it would be like to, to work on both ends of the wire. And, uh, what we quickly learned was that it was, it was, it's so cushy of an experience in, in a lot of ways, uh, that it, it can actually conceal certain things. And so we wound up having to push them into the internals of Meteor to teach the concepts we wanted to teach. And that, that just turned out to be really rewarding. So. Meteor in particular, I, I just find a, a pretty fascinating architecture. I feel like they're one of the first that struck out uh, with you know reactivity as a front front facing feature, and uh, and I'm I really believe that's kind of where everything is going and needs to go. Are you guys affiliated with Meteor in any official way, or are you just no? I mean, apart from the fact that they're down the street from us, and uh, you know we go to their hackathons pretty regularly, and we like them quite a bunch. Uh, you know, we have no specific relationship. Okay, so hopefully unbiased. Yeah, I mean, unbiased except for having screwed around with a lot of frameworks and uh, gotten really exhausted and then found Meteor to be really, I don't know, really refreshing. Uh, I'm definitely unbiased in, in how, how happy I am not to, not to do <laughs> all of the overhead that Meteor saves me. Unbiased and well-informed, how about that? Okay. So what is it about Meteor that you like? I mean... I'm looking at the API here, and the thing that people keep touting about having a back end and front end both in JavaScript is that you can share code between the two, and you know mm-hmm. you basically use the same APIs. Well, Meteor has a client API and a server API, just like everything else. Sure. So, so what what is the big win other than that it's in the same language? Does it make sense for um, them to give a, a basic rundown of Meteor first before we go into? Okay, then I'll launch yeah, my great. attack. I mean, um, ask them questions about it. <laughs> sure. Uh, so you're asking, like, what is the what's the basic rundown of how Meteor like functions? Well, just just yeah. intro to Meteor for people that don't know about it, maybe. Sure. But, yeah. Basically, what I'm thinking is, what is it, and why would you want to use it? Yeah. Well, so I think uh, centrally, what Meteor hopes to accomplish differently than other frameworks is to give you a client side environment that feels pretty much like you have access to everything you need and in in the background seamlessly sync up the data necessary to satisfy that uh, that expectation. Um, I think generally the way that uh, client server, you know, web infrastructure has been assumed to need to work is that when you're on the client, you kind of think about this very definitely stale data set that you're going to have to probably ignore and go fetch a new, a new copy of whatever piece of data you need and then put it through some render pipeline on the server side or on the client side and, and slug that, uh, resulting HTML into the page. Meteor just has a bit different approach. It looks a lot more like a rich client side framework, like say Angular, where you'll express the layout that you want once and you won't really express any of the update code. Um, there will be a reactive system for putting the correct values in. But the really cool trick is that, uh, Meteor has tethered together the queries that you make to a local database such that uh, any changes that would impact those queries are going to be syndicated down to your client uh, from the server. So when you say local, you mean some kind of browser database? Yeah, so they actually have a, a, a what's called Mini Mongo. It's a it's a small version of the interface to Mongo itself, and you have a full Mongo database running in the back end. Um, you query a local data set and you use whatever results come back from that local data set. They might be a fraction of the 
full data set. They might be no data result, no results whatsoever. And over time, as you, as the server syndicates things to you, the, the results of those queries will change and changes to those queries will reactively update views or whatever else is dependent upon them. So that's really the, that's really the central, I think, leap forward that these, these somewhat richer frameworks or let's say, uh, you know, both side frameworks like Derby and, uh, and Meteor are, are doing that's somewhat different from other rich client side frameworks like Angular and Ember and such. So to summarize the main difference, it's basically that Meteor will take care of synchronizing the data to the client for you. You don't explicitly fetch data, basically. Is that um, understanding it correctly? Yeah, roughly speaking, uh, I would say that what makes that interesting is less the auto syndication and more the fact that you interact directly with a synchronous, you know, data set that's uh, available synchronously on the client. And I suppose when you combine the auto syndication with data reactivity, you get this really elegant way that you can write code that looks very much like you you have a full access to all the data and you just trust that uh, the reactivity is going to handle the updates that come down from the server for you. It's a very novel approach, very different from what most of their frameworks are doing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they, they, they certainly, up until now, it's been the responsibility of the developer to maintain that the integrity of the, of the data set and identify when it's become suspicious or is definitely out of date and make the requests yourself. This saves some code and, and maybe gives some opportunities for the framework to do it more efficiently than the developer who often has to take a stab in the dark as to heuristics for when the data might, might have changed. So does it do it by pulling the back end or does it use something else like... Um, WebSockets? WebSockets, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's actually, um, that's a great question. I, I, I believe they actually just switched, um, for a while when, uh, when I heard about, you know, I, I chatted with them a bit about how they implemented it. They were complaining that WebSockets had some limitations and that, that their first implementation involved WebSockets. I'm, I'm telling a story I could be getting wrong, so apologies to the authors if I, if I misrepresent what they did, but, um, I think their original implementation started with WebSockets because they're like, well, of course, that's the way to do it. And then they were like, ah, it, it, it just, has limitations that we need to, uh, we need to hack around and we're gonna, we're gonna do it, uh, using long polling. Uh, apparently that is a common experience for people who implement real time web apps trying to get WebSockets to work. But then I recently heard a rumor that they've gone back to WebSockets. So perhaps the standards have evolved such that they were, they were able to get what they needed from them and, and, and swap, swap WebSockets out underneath their framework. Yeah. I know the WebSocket story has gotten better. But mm. I, I'm not sure exactly where it's at at this point. Yeah, it sounds like there's some good technical war stories in that decision. Yeah, interesting to hear about those. I get I get asked about that from time to time, so I really do need to uh, make a point of getting getting the full details from them. Uh, people people are curious what what exactly is wrong with WebSockets, and and I haven't run into limitations myself. Uh, I can only speak to what I heard. If somebody knows the real story and where things are at now. Send me an email, chuck at devchat.tv, and we'll get you on the show. Because I would love to know the real story and where things are at. So mm-hmm. one of the interesting things to me about Meteor is that it's not just a framework. It also provides some support for helping you deploy, which seems like a really novel idea, even though it also seems really obvious. Like, of course, you're going to make web apps with these and you need to deploy them. Do you know anything about how, how specifically that works? Can you talk about the deploy stuff built into Meteor? Uh, I know that that is 
pretty central to their their whole value prop. I mean, their business model is uh, basically focused around the idea that if they make the cushiest framework they can, the one that people will want to learn instead of all of the overhead that uh, that goes into architecture the way it, the way it stands now, they'll stand to be the the the, the central providers of, of that infrastructure, which is a pretty interesting gambit in my opinion. I mean, building an entire framework as as the first step to starting a business uh, and getting funding. I mean, they've got plenty of funding based on this. That's so. the engineer dream, right? Like, I'm going to sit in this room for six months and write the <laughs> best code ever, and then I'll get yeah. millions of VC dollars. And exactly. they did it. Definitely. They did it. Yeah. Uh, in terms of how it how it's technically accomplished, I know that they use the same reactive module for put, for syndicating things down to clients and for doing the local client updates to the to the screen. So once you have your server running remotely on their on their infrastructure, it's a pr- pretty similar mechanism by which your server is speaking to the client as the client is speaking from the from the models to the views to the to the DOM. So they only support deploying automatically with all the Meteor tools to their stack, or can you set them up to deploy to some... No, yet another uh, remarkable decision on their part. Uh, the You can run your own Meteor server. The easiest thing to do by far with the Meteor binary is just say, you know, Meteor deploy and it'll go to their servers. But if, uh, if the code is sensitive or something like that, you can spin it up yourself. It's all open source. So is it like a chef type of thing where you have a central Meteor server that manages deploying stuff to individual boxes? Or what do you mean when you say Meteor server? Uh, so I've never personally run a multi-instance Meteor application. I haven't, I haven't had to. It might be the case. I, 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 obviously it must be the case that, uh, that when you run Meteor server and you, and you deploy on their stack, they are, they're offering the story that you'll be able to scale that up to an arbitrary amount of traffic. But I don't know how that works because I've never had to do it myself. Uh, and it's in uh, behind I, a certain curtain there. I'll chime in a little bit there. I have, a, I have a few more insights into that. I think that's the eventual goal, to be able to scale up to any number of nodes. I believe at the, as last, uh, the last time I talked to them, it only worked on one instance. So there's there's infrastructure that needs to be built yet that will support multiple multiple servers and i think okay, a few so people you, who go ahead sorry yeah and, and no, i think no. a few people who are hosting it themselves have done this but i don't believe meteor is supporting that yet okay that makes sense so you you basically set up the meteor server on some box and then you can deploy directly to that box with the command right and that's the meteor deploy command that marcus is referring to is referring to uh, is deploying to their cloud mm-hmm. so there is a um, meteor cloud there is a meteor cloud that that's, you can deploy to. Yeah, that's that how they, sounds cool. That sounds like we're talking sci-fi. The meteor cloud. <laughs> yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. Like those pictures of the moon, all sort of like uh, you know, burst into little pieces in yeah. really awesome anime. That's that's actually where they store their data. It's up in one of those things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, what do you guys think of that? Those architectural decisions. To make that make their own cloud, make their own server, all that is that turning out well? Do you think that's a win for them? Well, I'm. <laughs> if anything, I'm just really hopeful because uh, it, I, I am currently the most impressed with their architecture choices. I had some reservations, but for the most part, I I, I still think of them as my my personal front runner for uh, for preferred victors in this framework war. 
And I was at first skeptical and puzzled that that business model would be promising. But that said, I mean, if, um, if they can capture the imaginations of, of, of a lot of people who, uh, you know, there's a lot of back-end programmers out there, for example, who, who just want to put apps on the internet. They're certainly capable coders, but CSS, HTML, uh, you know, data jockeying, all of this stuff is just kind of irritating to, to, from their perspective. And if you offer them something, something that, that relaxes a lot of that, you know, research they'd have to do, you know, maybe it's the case that, that it would work out, you know, as a, as a business model. And, and I very much, I very much hope that it will. And I, and I'm, I'm more convinced than I was when I first heard about it, that that's, that that's a viable approach. So does Meteor run on Node.js or do they have their own web server thing that runs the stuff or? Uh, yeah, it's currently on Node. Will it run on the other server side JavaScript engines like Rhino or any of the mm. other ones out there? Not to my knowledge, no. I'm 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 pretty sure they, uh, I'm pretty sure they designed it around a, a pretty standard toolkit with the intention that someday down the line uh, they might choose to support more corner cases. Um, that's that's one mantra that I've heard from them a lot. Every time I, I take issue with something that they don't support, their response to me has been, "Yeah, we love that idea, but the reason we have a product for you today is that we we have been." restrained enough not to start building broader support for every different option as we go along, which is the downfall of, I think, so many different initiatives like this one. So what they're really trying to do is is build out the the best mainline story first and then add support for for other you know, options down the line. I feel like that's an idea I've seen pop up in a lot of places, maybe just from what I've been reading recently, but just you ship first, and then you add all the extra polish and features. I mean, oh, you that make is, sure what you ship is good, but minimal. Yeah, that stuff. is um, that is like the central tenet we we have to teach our students. Uh, and and you know, when, when you work with when you work with people who are are really getting used to the workflow of programming, you you remember exactly how much it took to get yourself to let go of that that instinct to make it perfect and then move on. But I, I totally agree with that mentality. Yeah, but then they won't be prepared for when they get a real job and their manager says, hey, will you ship a bunch of crap, please? <laughs> <laughs> well, then, no, that's exactly, yeah. no, that's exactly the ideal, right? Like ship crap and then uh, polish it. <laughs> that's, that's, what you, that's what you'll be asked to do every day. I mean, in this industry, there's just no way, there's no way to write the correct thing first. That's not, that's not an option we have. Yeah, and speaking of speaking of constraining your requirements, they've also selected uh, another good example of how they've done this is the selection of their database. They've chosen Mongo in particular as the first database that they're going to support with the you know idea that eventually they would support other options. So that's been another criticism that I've heard is you know do you support this database X or Y? And and as Marcus pointed out, their their response is that's a great idea and maybe eventually, but right now we're constrained to a particular set of tools. Although maybe not for long. One of our, our students actually uh, wrote a, an adapter for RethinkDB, which is um, a, a reasonable alternative to Mongo in this case. Uh, so I don't know if that's released yet or not, but um, either now or in short order. I, I guess he did give a, a talk about it over at the Meteor dev shop. So uh, ostensibly, you can probably go out and look for Meteor Rethink and, and find his, his project where he you know built support into it. I wanted to ask one more question about this before we move on to their package stuff. Let's say I'm a Windows developer. I'm not, 
but let's pretend that I'm <laughs> okay. Phew. I play one on TV. <laughs> so does Meteor make any sense at all if you're not on an open source, you know, stack? I'm not sure what you mean by make any sense. Well, can I, if, if I'm a Windows developer, I've got Windows boxes around, right? That's what I've got for servers available for what I'm doing. And uh, let's say I'm okay. I'm, I'm fine with Mongo and I'm fine with JavaScript. Does, does Meteor make sense for me as a, as a .NET developer to consider as an alternative? Whoa, I have no idea. I've never tried to run it on a Windows box. Um, they, there might be a great story or they might be not trying at all. I'm not, I'm not actually sure. What do you do for dev environments? Because, I mean, I, you can use their cloud for production, but what if you're trying to develop on Windows? Can you, do they have like a dev environment cloud or something? Uh, so you can run the Meteor ser- server locally pretty, pretty easily. And I've only ever had to do that on a Mac. Uh, but provided they, you know, they have a, a Windows client, which I, I, I just can't speak to, um, I, I would have to imagine it would be the same. Like you could run it either remotely or locally. That makes sense. I'd like to, I'll chime in there a little bit. I, and this is speculative, but I assume that Microsoft Azure would have a generic Linux box that you could run. And presumably it could run your Meteor app in that configuration. If it was tailored to a .NET platform, I think, you know, they're definitely, that falls into the question mark zone. So I think there is some room there for, for bridging that gap, but maybe not, it may not be there a hundred percent. Yeah, well, Node plays nicely on Windows, so it may just work. Mm. It sounds like the consensus is none of us, none of us have tried, so. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I certainly do not consider myself an expert on, on, uh, everything Meteor. My, my main enthusiasm, the thing that I've, I've found the most interesting is how they approached, uh, the MVC question and how they approached the, the, the kinds of architecture concerns that, um, that the different frameworks, uh, the, the, the different rich client-side frameworks have had to face. I, I, I have not seen something quite as novel in terms of like wiring up your data to your views. That their workflow there has just been, um, honestly, it's, it was kind of the thing I was trying to think of in all of my, in all of my own open source efforts. And, uh, when I finally saw their implementation, I just sort of slapped my forehead and I was like, Oh, that's how you do it. It's be a, a good and a bad feeling. Yeah, a little of each. Yeah, you've been definitely scooped. if you spend over a year on a <laughs> on a module and then someone blows it away in fifty lines of code. You, yeah, it's it's bittersweet. <laughs> so I want to ask one more question about some of the internals, and then maybe we can get a little bit more back to high level stuff about building apps with it. I know when they first launched, they took quite a lot of heat for not using npm for their packages. They had their own yes. kind of hand rolled package management system. I might have did that change or are they still doing that? So they were mid change last I checked. Uh, they might have finished at this point. Um, but basically the NPM, the patch, the, the packaging system was simply, it lacked a feature that they, they felt they needed. And I forget what that feature was, but, uh, something to do with, no, no, I, if I, if I, if I were to guess, I would just be, I would just be guessing, but there was some feature missing from, the npm packaging story and so they they wrote their own packaging system and they yes they did get so much flack about it that they um finally uh started working on a a bridge and i don't know how how they're doing on that but uh i know that it is a near-term goal if not one that they already finished okay cool so I, i also wanted to ask 
a little bit more about how you actually build Meteor apps. So, so there's no divide between client and server, right? That, that just seems like a hard thing to get your head around. I'm so used to having like a, a public directory where I put all my client JavaScript mm-hmm. and then all my server stuff. Like, how do you deal so, with, go ahead. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, that, that's a reasonable, that's a reasonable sort of intuition as to, you know, what does it mean for a piece of code to be potentially running on either side or both? And I think at the end of the day, that is not actually quite how it works. Uh, it's very clear that code will run on either the client or the server in, in most cases. Sometimes, uh, and it, and it tends to be pretty clear once you sort of, uh, have worked with a, an app or two, it's pretty clear that code, uh, will be running on, on both sides. And the way to think about this is the code that runs in Node and the code that runs in your browser have been written on top of different shims, different abstractions for the same ideas. So for example, I, and probably the best example is the, the database itself. When you, to interact with the database, you create a new collection. You say, you know, var users equals meteor.collection users, right? And you'll, you'll draft up a new collection that you can query about. Now on the server side, that's talking to the actual database. Um, the, the abstraction that, uh, Meteor collection returns you is the, is, um, you know, a, a queryable cursor of, you know, data in the, in the actual server side database. Whereas in the client, you're getting something that, that has a similar enough interface that your code won't probably bump into the differences, but the data might be slightly less complete as a result of that query. The reactivity ultimately is going to patch up any differences between the data set, but your interface will remain pretty consistent. So if you, if you imagine that paradigm sort of copying over to all sorts of different things, so like sessions and, um, things like that, you can imagine kind of how they've, how they've conceived of, of the code that runs in two places. There is code that runs on only one side or the other. Uh, there's a server directory and a client directory, and any code you put in there runs where you might think it would. And then there's a, um, a flag you can, you can query. So like meteor.isServer, meteor.isClient. These are just true false flags that you can guard code in a block of like, well, you know, this, this, uh, this particular file has a slightly different behavior on one side of the wire from another. For example, if you were writing your own shim, you might use, you might use that flag, uh, and then expose an interface that is, uh, uniform across both environments. That makes sense. I feel like I still am having a hard time grasping how, how it actually works to write an app in it. So you, I mean, if you're making a server, traditionally you'll have like your API and your client will consume mm-hmm. the JSON. You don't worry about that though, right? I mean, your server directory, you said you can have a separate server and client directory. Your server mm-hmm. directory isn't going to have a bunch of routes that return data though, because you can do that from the client already. So how do right. you, how do you kind of lay out your app? How do you structure it? Absolutely. Uh, so let me, let me give you the simple case and then I'll, uh, I'll complicate it with some of the necessary, um, you know, security concerns and things like that. Um, but in the simplest case, you could, you could build a Meteor app that simply, you, you, you simply don't think about the server at all. In the same sense that you might, uh, talk to a parse API object that gives you back data and it's magically coming from some, uh, some server somewhere, you might never have to actually 
interact with even the RESTful API if it's if it's the object interface that you're that you're using for Parse, and that's that's kind of what it can feel like with Meteor. Only I would say a little bit more intuitive because Meteor spins up this local uh, mini Mongo, and you're querying what feels like an in-memory database that somehow has all of the data you need. So from that perspective, building an app might feel rather like building an Angular app that uh, that had a bunch of dummy data available. And the limitation, obviously, with a client-side only framework like that is eventually you're going to have to plumb out, you know, providing real data. Um, but with Meteor, you could imagine building an entire app where you query this local data, data set. Uh, the data set is, uh, seamlessly linked up. And, uh, if you've, if you've, uh, relied on your reactivity correctly, then your app is just going to look, uh, up to date at all times. So that's the simple version of the story. And, and before I, before I like add any of the complications, I just want to make sure, like, did I address what you were curious about or, or something different? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So the slight complication is you might actually not want the client to have full access to all of the data. And there are different ways of approaching concealing things from the client or forcing the client to, you know, authenticate or, or sort of justify its, its request for data. There's a, a way that you will see documented more. And then there's a way that I think is probably better. Uh, the way that's documented more is with what's called Meteor methods. Meteor methods are kind of like RPC calls. Um, they feel a lot like uh, foisting a you know request at a server saying, "Hey, this is the kind of thing that I want. Can I have it back, please?" Yes, and then you get it back, and it is um, you know it's asynchronously provided, and it's a it's a block of JSON data uh, for whatever was was uh, was figured out on the server side. You write the client side and the server side of this Meteor method on the server side. You expose some, uh, some method in the, you know, it's, a, it's basically just a string with uh, an argument signature. So uh, on the client side, you're able to uh, query the server in the form of saying, Hey, I want to like to call a method that has this particular name and uh, pass the arguments along. You, you know that they're going to be stringified, sent to the server, and the server is going to run whatever you've defined inside your server side implementation of Meteor method. As an experience, I think this is a bit overcomplicated because you'll be looking at code that um, slightly farther down, perhaps, you're querying a Meteor method, and slightly farther up, you're defining a Meteor method. And it might not be totally obvious to you that there's a barrier between machines going on there. Um, it doesn't feel quite like a function call because, you know, you do have to specify it as kind of a string, but it does look for all the world like you are talking to a system that you defined a few lines above, right? So for that reason, I think uh, I think Meteor methods are a complete solution to the problem, a correct solution to the problem, but not necessarily the most intuitive to everybody. The one that I think is is slightly better, and maybe this is maybe this is just uh, my own opinion, but uh, the one that I think is slightly better is to whitelist and blacklist query patterns on the server and do everything as direct interactions with your MiniMongo. The story for that is just much simpler. You simply say, like, you know, the client is allowed to have access to data X, Y, and Z, except under circumstance, you know, uh, ABC, in which case I can't get access to, I, I, the server does not allow access to the database in this particular way. And then the client just does what, what we said in the very simple case. It queries its local database, and those queries 
sort of optimistically go through synchronously, uh, and then they might be denied on the server. And it's your responsibility as a developer to, to, to issue valid queries. So you mentioned something there uh, when you were talking about the first way to do it, where you're, you're doing server-side operations, but they don't look like they're server-side. I think that's something that Java struggled with a little bit back in the day, and that Node explicitly kind of addresses by callbacks, right? Like things that are asynchronous that should take a while should explicitly look asynchronous. But Meteor gets around that because all their data syncing is kind of taken care of for you in the background. Is that an accurate right. explanation? That's Yeah, that's pretty close. I guess the only thing I would clarify there is uh, you said that things looked asynchronous in Node, and a Meteor method call also looks as asynchronous as it is. The only tricky part is you might not realize that it has gone over the wire to satisfy, to satisfy the asynchronous request. Okay. Because you could, you could have written the code right next, like, as in the next, in the next line. You could be looking at both of them on one screen. But it's not necessarily, uh, it's not necessarily running the code a few lines above in the same environment on the same box. Sure. Are, are there any open source Meteor apps out there that people can look at to kind of get a handle of how a well-structured Meteor app looks? Oh yeah, tons of them. I would say the the Meteor guys have uh, made a point of putting out quite a few examples and stuff. The the onboarding story. I mean, since since their whole idea is let's let's make this drop dead simple. Let's not let's not make let's not make people force people to make deeply technical decisions about whether or not this framework is living up to their expectations. Let's simply make it impossible to fall off the wagon on your way to spinning a Meteor app up. So, so in that in that vein. I think their uh, their introductory steps, their their tutorial is just top notch. But there are a lot of other people out there building open source meteor apps that uh, that you can sort of check out for a less, you know, sort of more of an off road experience. I do have to say that just the name Meteor Method sounds like you're programming in awesome mode. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're they're. I'll, I'll admit they're a pretty hip crew over there. They're um, yeah. Yeah, Meteor Cloud, Meteor Methods, it's awesome. I love it. Yeah, that's deep. So our questions about Hack Reactor, okay? Absolutely. We were actually talking about it at work the other day. One of my friends was just, he's trying to sell some of his friends on it. And basically, do you think this is an indication that there's a tech bubble? The fact that someone can take a three-month class and then get a job with a well above medium, median salary? in the tech industry? Like what other uh, it's funny I actually is that possible in? Yeah, absolutely. I, I actually see it as kind of the inverse. Um, it seems as though tech is so underserved by the education system right now. Uh, if you look at the projections for how many how many uh, software engineers there are coming out of the, the backbone of our education system, which is universities at this point, you know, versus the demand. I mean, we all see the world increasingly becoming more technical and, and, and having code kind of spill out into every facet of our lives. That mismatch feels very much like a vacuum rather than a bubble to me. And I think, um, I think that a bubble can have, can have, uh, you know, similar symptoms. You can have, um, like, you know, obviously in the nineties, there was a, a ballooning of, of people's expectations, but that really was from investment, like speculative investment when no one really even knew what the internet was. And a few people cashed in on Google and a lot of people got 
got screwed. But that 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 seems like um a rather different market mechanism, right? Like it seems as though in the '90s, what we were looking at was a lack of understanding of exactly what was needed. Whereas now, what, what we're looking at is pretty sober facts about what we can't accomplish, things we know we must accomplish as a society that we can't accomplish because we don't have enough people. You guys, I'm 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 sure with your with your experience have uh, the same the same in in what industry. In what industry is it is it legitimate to complain about recruiters contacting you too much? You know, I would say that that symptom, the symptom of, of recruiters being seen as a nuisance in this industry, uh, if that is not a symptom of a bubble, uh, I I can't imagine that satisfying the demand for those programmers is uh, is a symptom either. Sure, that makes sense. And I'd like to say that I hardly agree with that assessment of the uh, education industry at large. Oh, really? Absolutely. The, oh, I'm, the, I'm curious. I'm curious what you uh, what your perspective is there. Well, I mean, I, I do think that people that graduate out of college come out unprepared, and we're just not producing enough of them, and we haven't found a good way to onboard people into technology. So, I have a buddy who's um, in his mid 30s, switched careers from finance into programming, and um, he did find I I put him through the .NET route. I, I kind of helped him and did some training and. When it came time to find a job, he actually had some trouble finding a job, but it wasn't too long before he kind of moved into this phase where he had done it enough on his own that people were, now he was qualified for not not the entry-level jobs. At, at entry-level, it was like, oh, do you have a degree or not? But once he moved into the kind of the mid, uh, lower mid-level, then it was, now there's people, you know, banging down the door because they just cannot find programmers to fill these spots. And he, you know, in a year and a half, I think so and obviously not an optimized experience like what you guys are talking about, but in a year and a half, he was able to completely switch industries and practically replace his um, salary at an industry he'd been in for 15 years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but which opinion, which perspective were you disagreeing with? Because it sounds very much in accordance oh, no, no, with no, what we're not finding. Disagreeing. Sorry, it came out like this. I was agreeing, absolutely agreeing with your opinion. Oh, about oh. Education. the system doesn't. Service us. Oh man, I thought we were going to have a good argument. <laughs> <laughs> fight, fight, uh, fight. We're yeah, I so all too. the softballs about Meteor, and now, <laughs> now you Sorry. like our school too. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding, guys. I, uh, I appreciate that you feel the same way, uh, we do. And, um, I mean, yeah, it's, it is, uh, a little bit, it's a little bit heartbreaking to see this tremendous mismatch between such smart people. I mean, the, the people I get to work with just blow me away. And, they, they, to hear the things that they are talking about uh, doing in their other lives and then having to switch industries because there just isn't enough room in it uh, in aerospace or whatever. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I feel the exact same way. So it seems like Meteor is trying to fill the demand from an, another direction. Well, maybe the same direction. So, so Hack Reactor is trying to train up more developers, right? And Meteor mm-hmm. seems like it's it's kind of a step towards more commoditization of development, right? It's just taking away a lot of the complexity, uh, or that's its pitch, right? Yeah, um, I, I definitely see it that way. Is that an overall trend that you feel like you're seeing, where things are gradually getting less complex, they're, they're more abstracted, so that the, the skill barrier to building things is lower? Yeah, I actually kind of, um, you know, I was... I was a little conflicted about that when I heard how they were approaching it because I know that they, um, I know that they 
their primary market right now is people who otherwise would not have written web apps. You know, who who think, okay, well, I, you know, I'm I'm technical. I know I know some stuff, but uh, but you know what? I I just don't I don't have time to dig into all of the nuances of how this stuff works and backbone. Backbone can lead you to a mess, so maybe you think it's going to solve some problems, and then all of a sudden you find you have more problems. So, in a sense, when I first heard that Meteor is is lowering the the barrier to entry, I thought I had a pang of, oh, you know, please, 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 please continue to expect of people that they're going to learn good software engineering practices. But I trust them at this point. You know, I I don't think they are. I don't think they are dumbing it down. I think they are simply removing the unnecessary complexity. At least that's been my experience so far. Yeah, that's always a positive thing if they can remove the complexity. But if you remove the complexity and remove some of the power with it, then yeah, that you know, it's not a good thing. Yeah, unless it's power that no one's using. Yeah, I think that there is a tremendous amount of um, power that is not super useful. Um, I mean, obviously, you get a certain you get a certain benefit out of being able to query the server anytime you feel like it and maybe even being forced to, but the, the, the price you pay is so high. It's no different from jQuery where, you know, perhaps knowing the DOM API and using the DOM API gives you opportunities to uh, optimize how you scrape the page for a, for a span element or something. But do you really want to spend your resources optimizing that? I think that the industry has found that by standing on top of jQuery, We've become tremendously more productive and, and we give ourselves time to profile our applications. We, we earn back all this developer time where we can profile the app and find out how it, you know, how it's actually getting slow. Uh, and it turned out the span, the span, you know, you know, scraping the DOM for a span tag was not the thing we needed to be optimizing. So jQuery is all win. And I, I feel like, I feel like these frameworks are, are going through a lot of, they're getting a lot of flack for being too easy. Um, and it's only partially validated. Awesome. Well, are there any other aspects of uh, Meteor that you want to talk about before we jump into the picks? You know, I guess the the one thing that I I want to make sure people. In fact, we can even call this a pick. Honestly, I, I'll send you a link to their um, the file that powers all of their reactive data binding stuff. It's so elegant. This is the aspect that I I spent you know many many hours and months laboring over. And then had that big aha moment. And uh, I just find it so interesting to read these 50 lines of code. They were able to do a lot of things in 50 lines of code that, uh, that, uh, should by all rights take a lot more. So that's, that's one of my favorite aspects of Meteor is just how they accomplished reactivity. Awesome. It sounds really cool. I'd be interested to look at that. Yeah. It's a great piece of code. I would highly recommend it. Sweet. All right. Well, let's go ahead and jump into the picks then. Did we lose Joe? Yeah, he had to take off early. He he gave me my picks, or his picks, okay. not my picks. I'm not a puppet. So, uh, Jameson, what are Joe's picks? So, his only pick is ng-conf. It's the I've Angular conference. Yeah, he hasn't picked it for the last three weeks in a row. It's, it's the big Angular conference, January 14th to 15th, I think, in Utah, in Salt Lake City. I think tickets go on sale reasonably soon, but we'll drop the... We'll drop the link to the website in the show notes again. And I believe they're $600 for early bird. So, and then 800 for full price. So yeah, that's his pick. Nice. All right, Jameson, what are your picks? All right, my own picks. So I have two. One is a blog post by a developer named Ben Kamins. Commons? I don't know his last name. 
Uh, he's at Khan Academy, and it's about shipping beats perfection. That's one of their engineering team's models. We kind of touched on it a little bit, but it's it's a really good explanation of that idea because if you hear the phrase shipping beats perfection, you might think like, no, what if you have bugs? That doesn't beat not shipping. Like shipping crappy stuff is bad. But he kind of defines what perfection means in that case. And it's that you you narrow the scope of your thing. So what you ship is stable and, and good and, and stuff, but it's very small. I just really like the blog post. It's a really good explanation of it. And my second pick is a uh, YouTube video from YUI Conference 2013, I believe. And it's a, a technical writer talking about writing for developers. We recently started up a tech blog at ITV. And I feel like writing is something that every developer can improve on. And writing skill is not necessarily normally distributed together with developer skill. <laughs> like you might be a really good developer, but have some things to learn in your writing. And this is a really good overview of practical things that will improve your writing. He doesn't spend time talking about grammar. Um, he basically says like, yeah, you, you won't make grammar mistakes. Or if you do, like you'll catch them by proofreading or having someone else proofread. But this is how you avoid awkward sentence construction or how you express your point clearly. I just, I, I really liked it. It felt like it was a really good sweet spot for people that fluently speak English, but want to get better at writing. So those are my picks. Awesome. All right. Um, I'll throw a couple of picks out there. Of course, I always think of my picks at the beginning of the show and then I forget what they are by the time the show ends. Make a meteor app that records your picks. Done. <laughs> I should, shouldn't I? <laughs> One pick that I have is called Boxin. Uh, it's at boxin.github.com. It's based on Puppet, which is a DevOps library written in Ruby. But what it does is it allows you to configure your development box, and you can use it to do, to set up multiple development boxes. Um, and the reason I've been looking at this is because I'm working for a client that... Uh, uh, anyway, I spent a week and a half basically just getting their app up and running in my dev environment. And it's just because there are some pieces in there that need to talk to each other and it's not well documented. And so I was thinking that if I could put together something like uh, Boxin or, you know, Chef Solo or something that would stand up the box, pull in all the Git repositories, pull down sample configuration files, and basically do all the heavy lifting, it would be really nice for bringing other people on. And so uh, super, super excited to play with that. And I had another one. Oh, yeah. I've been listening to the audiobook for Book Yourself Solid. and. Uh, it's a book about uh, basically service providers, so think freelancers, which I am, and I've I've really really been enjoying it, been getting a lot out of it. So uh, that's another pick. Marcus, what are your picks? Well, I would say the the first one is probably that depths file, which I just uh, I just looked up, and it uh, it's it's grown a little bit. It's not fifty lines anymore, but it's still super <laughs> awesome source code to read. And well commented. The second one is a student project that uh, I really enjoy playing with. We teach the students to uh, implement underscore um, as a way of learning the language. And uh, he made a game called Underscoreboard where you can competitively uh, race to implement some version of uh, a function at a time. So you'll be given like each or filter. And uh, so will, so will another person out on the internet and you'll You'll see who can get there faster, who can get all the tests to pass faster. It's a lot of fun. It's called underscoreboard.com. Awesome. Fred, what are your picks? Yeah, my uh, my number one pick is uh, a library called Action Hero. 
And it's ironic that we're talking about Meteor today, and I bring up Action Hero, but it's one of my favorite new backend frameworks. Uh, with all this emphasis on front-end frameworks, um, I feel like the the server side is is uh, it's not getting quite the same love. And what I particularly like about Action Hero is it you know it puts the API development first, and it introduces um, background jobs as a first-class citizen of the environment. And uh, it just supports lots of different oh. transports. So if you're if you're building a front end app that's not Meteor, consider using Action Hero because it's going to make your uh, web development a lot smoother. Your app development. So that's that's my first pick. And then second pick is also a student project. It's a browser based space game. So <laughs> it's actually kind of fun. You can have these dog fights with other spaceships around an asteroid. What's really cool about this, uh, well, first of all, it was created by our students in two weeks, but the amazing thing is that they were able to get some pretty serious performance out of a, out of a browser app. So they use three CPU cores in order to make this happen. They're using the GPU with WebGL. They're, they've implemented the physics engine using web workers, and then the main app runs in the main in the main core. So you get three cores running essentially one application, which is pretty awesome. That sounds really cool. And the last one, my last pick, is also a student project. Um, this is a great way to kind of um, I call it a let's call it a research tool to kind of see what your political associates are doing. Uh, it kind of aggregates and compiles different data sources and produces some really nice visuals about them. So you can go in there and talk about, uh, do searches on what our representatives are talking about on the floor, or how much they, how many times they've said a particular phrase, who's, who's providing their sponsoring and funding. It's a great time waster um, and kind of gives you insight into the political process. Mm. Can we just fire them all? <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a single page app. <laughs> it just says that on the front. <laughs> Yep. Sorry, I haven't been talking. I'm playing this game. This is really high quality. <laughs> I'm really impressed. They did this in two weeks. This is sweet. Yeah, all right. They, pretty impressive projects. Yeah, I should probably mention uh, the rethink rethink live data, which is that project uh, or I mentioned earlier for adding new support to another database to Meteor. So I've just pasted the link to that. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. Thanks for coming, guys. It, it's been really fun to talk about, um, and hopefully some folks will go try out Meteor and see what it's all about. Cool. Thanks for yeah, coming th- on. Thanks for having us. Yep. Yeah, catch catch you all next week. <laughs>